Welcome to Equipping the Body. I'm Dr. Brad Starnes, and today we're continuing our walk through the book of Luke, and we've now come to Luke 8, 26 through 39. This is one of my favorite stories in Scripture. One cannot imagine a spookier scene as the disciples are in the boat with Jesus, soaking wet after just going through a life-threatening storm, and then as they come to shore on the opposite side, on the shore of Gadara in the region of Decapolis, they see a shadowy figure howling, crying in a graveyard in the hills of Gadara. The boat creaks and winds as it gently presses up against the foggy shore, and the shadowy figure comes closer and closer until he meets Jesus. And that's where our story begins. But before we begin, let me say that this testimony of this tormented creature reveals to us the sort of radical transformation that takes place in the new birth. This man is delivered from demonic possession and his sin and set free by Jesus Christ. Though you and I may not have been possessed, we were sinners all the same before we were transformed by the Holy Spirit through the new birth. In this, we have something in common with this man. I want to preach to you on this subject, the day God delivered Gadara's demoniac. The day God delivered Gadara's demoniac. And before we even begin, there is one central application I want you to take from this text and apply it to your life. Here it is. Transformed people tell other people. Transformed people tell other people. In other words, saved people tell other people how to be saved. There is a desire in the heart of those who have been transformed to tell others. That desire comes from Christ himself, as we're going to see in this story. Now, our story is sliced into several scenes for our study. Number one, the demoniac's confrontation in 26 through 27. And then in verse 27 alone, the duration of his condition. Verse 27b, the location of his habitation. Verses 28 through 33, the provocation of his transformation. Verses 34 through 37, the substantiation of his transformation. And then finally, the proclamation of his transformation. Let's begin with number one, verses 26 through 27a, the demoniac's confrontation. The text says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee, and when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. When he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man. Our story begins, After calming the sea, sea of Galilee, we now find our Christ and his companions have made it to the other side. From the region of Galilee to the city of Gadara, located in the region of Decapolis. From Galilee to Gadara, if you will. Now, Gadara, as I said, was a city of the Gadarenes, which is opposite of Galilee. It's in the region of Decapolis. Now, this city still exists on a steep hill about five miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Decapolis was inhabited mainly 
by Gentiles. There were some Jews that lived there, but mostly Gentiles, which explains why there were pig farmers nearby, because we know the Mosaic law forbid a Jew to have anything to do with a pig, whether farming one, eating one, owning one as a pet or whatever. They were an unclean animal. So that is part of how we know uh, that they were Gentiles. And so in verse 27, we come to the meat of the message. Hell and heaven meet face to face as the demoniac confronts Christ. Now, not only the demoniac's confrontation, but notice secondly, secondly sorry, in verse 27, the duration of his condition. It says, who had demons for a long time. A long time. He wasn't always like this. He was always a sinner. Everybody's born a sinner. But he was not always demon-possessed. But he had been this way for a long time. The duration of his condition for years. I want you to imagine his poor mother had sat on her back porch looking towards those hills of Gadara in which the dead were laid to rest, listening to her once sweet little boy crying out in pain, shrieking in madness. Perhaps even his dad would come out on the back porch and put his arm around the mother and say, Honey, come inside. There's nothing we can do for him. You know, they tried to chain him up. He broke his chains. We tried to keep him at home, and he wouldn't stay home. He just wants to stay in that graveyard all day. Year after year, a little more of her heart broke. Day after day, his dad gave up a little more. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. She could not help but think of the sweet little boy she used to rock tonight, rock to sleep at night. Now he's a madman, a pervert, running around naked in a graveyard, cutting himself and screaming at passerbys. Oh, what a tragedy. And this had gone on for a long time. I've seen many parents in my years who have watched their children go off into sin and waller in the mire of filth, come to a pastor brokenhearted year after year, you can just see the sadness in their face grow a little more. The duration of his condition. Not only the duration of his condition, but next we notice the location of his habitation. It says, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. He felt most at home among the dead. Yes, the dead enjoy the dead. We can draw a rather significant spiritual application. Those who are dead in sin enjoy hanging with those who are dead in trespasses and sin. My people used to have a lot of sayings, God rest his soul, and one of those sayings went like this, birds of a feather flock together. You'd not find this man in a synagogue on Saturday hearing the word of God. That's not his crowd. Rather, he was more at home with the dead. He had a sick obsession with death and the occult. I believe we see this in our day. People who worship and thrive off the things of the occult, astrology signs, witchcrafts, all sorts of evil. But what but that's what this man's depraved heart was drawn to. He felt at home in this graveyard. Why? Well, for the same reason a drunk feels more at home in a beer joint than on the couch with his wife at home. 
The same reason a sexual deviant feels more at home with perverts at a pride rally than he or she does on a church pew. Birds of a feather flock together. What a horrible scene. The dead enjoy the company of the dead. He was bound in chains by sin. He was spiritually dead, and so he felt most at home with the dead. Let me stop and ask you a question. Where do you feel at home? Who's your crowd? Who's your, or as we say today, you know, everybody's got to be uh, uh, up to date with it. Who's your tribe? Who do you thrive with? The company you keep and enjoy and feel at home with says a lot about who you are and where you are, spiritually speaking. There was a time where I didn't, I couldn't stand going to church. Why? Because I was lost. I didn't want to hear that spiritual stuff. But when I got saved, I began to enjoy the things of God. I loved the house of God, being with the people of God, hearing the word of God from the man of God. The crowd you keep, what about it? We see the location of his habitation. Not only that, but as we come to verse 28, and this is where things start to turn around, we see the provocation of his transformation. What provoked him to transform? Who provoked him, I should say, to transform? Begin reading in verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him. And he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by demons into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion because many demons had entered him, and they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man, entered in the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When this man came in the presence of Christ, his true nature manifested itself. The demons cried out from him. The word of God and the presence of God will cause somebody's true colors to show always. I can't read this story without thinking about the man who had a possessed spirit in the synagogue. And when Jesus went in and started preaching, he starts foaming at the mouth and showing his true colors. Now, this man had been in this synagogue and heard all the other preachers did nothing. But when Jesus came in there preaching the book, he couldn't help but show his true colors. That's what the Bible does. The Bible reveals who you are. It reveals who Christ is, and it reveals who you are in light of who Christ is. Nevertheless, this man falls down at the feet of Jesus, much like the demon-possessed man before. This is not the first time Jesus has encountered a demon-possessed man. And yet Jesus provokes a transformation. Jesus commands the demons to leave him. The man doesn't command the demons to leave himself. 
Jesus does. And you know what the demons do? They have to do what he says. And they have to ask his permission. They said, please, let us go into these pigs over there. And Jesus said, that's fine. Get out of them. You know what they did? They got out of them, went in the pigs. Hell is subject to the sovereignty of Christ. Don't, that may shock you. you. You may be uncomfortable with that kind of language, but that's a true statement. I remember hearing an old preacher say this one time, the devil, he's a bad devil, but he's God's devil. Read the book of Job. Anytime the devil wanted to do anything, he had to get God's permission. And so we see the provocation of his transformation. Jesus transforms him, casts the demons out of him, forgives him of his sin, calls him to repentance all in one swoop. You know what you need to gather from this little section of this text? You can't save yourself. Society tried to save him. They put chains on him. He broke the chains. We live in a society where we try to reform criminals. We try to reform uh, wicked people by sending them to prison, feeding them three hots and uh, letting them sleep on a cot. And now they give them college degrees and everything else. And then they just leave prison a smart criminal. <laughs> we try to send them to counseling and let some Freudian nut job work some uh, mental jiu-jitsu on their brain and see if that will fix them. Ladies and gentlemen, the only thing that will change a sinner is the blood of Jesus Christ. The only thing that will take a man and make him a new man, not a better man, but a different man. You don't need to get better. You need to die. That's right. Does that shock you? Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, follow me. You need to die so that Christ may live in you. Now, I'm not talking about physical death. I'm speaking of spiritual matters. That's why Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. I'm dead. It's not about me anymore. Self has been put on a shelf. It's about Christ. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it this way. If you don't believe me, believe Jesus. Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father draw him. You cannot save yourself. You can't turn over enough new leaves to amount to a pile of anything. You can't get a case of the do-betters and actually do better. Oh, I'm going to do better, preacher. You can't. You can't. So why lie? You need to be born again. Bible says that it's Christ who works in you both to will and to do. It's about Jesus. And this man was transformed. The provocation of his transformation did not come from himself. Jesus provoked his change. If you've changed, if you've been born again, you didn't do it. Jesus did it. He gets all the credit. And so we see the provocation of his transformation. Well, how do we know he was changed, Pastor? I mean, you know, don't you suppose that he could uh, control himself but for a moment and maybe fool some people? What is the substantiation of his transformation? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because beginning in verse 34 and through verse 37, we find the substantiation of his transformation, the proof in the pudding, if you will. Look at verse 34. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man. They found him. <laughs> but Jesus found him first. I, I like that. 
from whom the demons had departed, past tense. What's he doing? Here he is, sitting at the feet of Jesus, comma, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. That's ending in verse 35. The substantiation of his claim of transformation was the change in his life, an inside change that manifested itself outwardly. He put some clothes on. <laughs> when you get saved, you put some clothes on. And not only physically, though that's what had happened, he was no longer naked, he had put some clothes on. He had also been robed in righteousness, spiritually. He got dressed up, if you will, put some clothes on. He had a moral reckoning that his nakedness was sinful and perverted, and he no longer wanted to be naked. He wanted to put clothes on because his desires had been changed by the master. Not only that, but he's no longer running around cutting himself in a graveyard. He's sitting. He's at rest. He is in a peaceful state because he has met the Prince of Peace. He used to run around and cut himself and holler at people walking down the road. He don't do that no more. He, he's had a seat with the Savior. Then it says he's in his right mind. Sophroneo. In the Greek, it means to be sober-minded. His mind has been brought to a place of peace because the demons have been cast out, the Holy Spirit lives in him, his sins have been forgiven, he's going to heaven when he dies. I can't think of a better reason to be at a peace of mind. He's sitting. He was running. He's clothed. He was naked. He's in his right mind. He was as we'd say down here in South Carolina, plum crazy. He's been transformed. The substantiation of his transformation is this. He's different. Was he perfect, Pastor? Absolutely not. Salvation is not a matter of perfection in this life, but rather a change of direction. Now, when you get to heaven, when you die, you'll be perfect. That's right. You get a new body. Uh, there'll be no sin in heaven. Absolutely. But you will not reach perfection in this life. But when you get saved, you will change direction. Not perfection, but direction. He's different. And then the Bible even tells us as we go on that he told Jesus, can I go with you? I want to be with you. He's changed crowds. He, he don't want to be in the graveyard no more. He wants to go with Jesus. He wants to be with the one who changed his Life. He's been captivated by Christ and is no longer demented by demons. Not only the substantiation of his transformation, but then we come to verse 38 through 39 and we find the proclamation of his transformation. It says, Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And when he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. How about that? This man has been delivered and transformed by Jesus Christ, and guess what? The Savior did not save him to sit, but to serve. He said, Jesus, I just kind of want to sit here and go with you. He said, I understand, son, but I didn't save you to sit here with me. I saved you to serve. You need to go tell everybody. 
about the somebody who can take anybody from being a nobody and make them somebody. Don't ask me to say that again. I can't. I'll get tongue twisted. But he said, go tell everyone. Transformed people are to tell other people. Saved people are to try to get other people to be saved people. Healed people are to help other people. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Have you no desire for others to be saved? Then be sure of this. You are not saved yourself. Saved people like it when other people get saved. People that have been delivered like to deliver the message to other people about the deliverer. (laughs) He said, go tell everybody. Tell them what I've done. Isn't it amazing that Luke records it in this way? Jesus says, go tell them what God has done. And the Bible says, Luke says, he went and told them what Jesus has done. What's the significance? Jesus is God. Just a little bit of Christology there. That's not part of the sermon. That's just extra. Saved people are to point sinners to the Savior so that they may be saved themselves. That's a fact. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. You say, well, Pastor, I I just, you know, I kind of feel like that's a pastor's job. Oh, you've missed it. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Can I read it to you? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's the order. Go and proclaim the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, how Christ has changed your life, and go teach others how Christ can change their lives. The proclamation of his transformation. He went and told everybody. Now, I want you to return back to the story in your mind and allow me some liberty. Jesus told him a statement that I want to deal with as we come to a close. He said, return to your own home. Now, the way my mind works, and I'm half crazy, but that's okay. I I asked you to imagine his dear mother and father sitting on the back porch overlooking the hills of Gadara which housed the graveyard, listening to the son they loved, howling at the moon, cutting himself, running around naked. Can you imagine the rejoicing when they heard a knock at the door? And Mama walks in from the kitchen, tear-stained eyes. She cries every day since her son's been gone. And she looks out the window at the door. She drops the plates in her hand. They shatter. She's shocked. And she looks, and she sees that sweet boy that she had loved from the time God had placed him in her womb. And he's not dirty anymore. Oh, he's got some scars, but they're not bleeding. He's got his clothes on, haircut, looks normal, (laughs) sitting there patiently waiting on somebody to open the door. She goes, gets her husband. You, you gotta get. You gotta come in here. You're not gonna believe this. He knocks on the door again. Son, we know you can't. Uh, you know we can't let you in here. You remember what you did last time? You beat on your mama. You tore the house up. Started cutting. You said we we can't let you in here, son. He says, Dad. 
I'm not going to do that stuff anymore. You see, Dad, I met a man named Jesus. I don't care to be in that graveyard no more. I'd like to come home. And he gave me some clothes to put on, some robes of righteousness. I'm not going to walk around naked no more. And, Dad, I've got these scars because I can't change the past, but I'm not going to make no new ones. Can I come home, Dad? Can you imagine the moment that door opened and tears streamed down that his father's calloused, tear-stained, bearded face and he hugged his son, a changed man. I said, son, what happened? Dad, it ain't a what happened. It's who happened. I met a na man named Jesus. Can I stay here? Oh, yes, and they begin to rejoice and they begin to weep and praise God. They sit down to a meal. And a short time after that, the boy gets up. Where are you going, son? Automatically, they begin to assume the worst because what they've been through. Where are you going? Dad, that man Jesus, he told me to tell everybody I knew what he did for me. I've got to go tell him what he did for me. I'll be back before dark. <laughs> and the boy goes out and he begins to tell the townspeople. You can imagine the people in town. You remember that guy? You know, uh, Jim and Susie. I don't know if their name was Jim and Susie. Jim and Susie's son that used to sit out there in that graveyard and cut. Man, yeah, he's, he scared the devil out of me the other week. I was walking by there and he was cutting himself and hollering and screaming. Well, let me tell you something. He's back. What do you mean he's back? There he is. Townspeople turn around. They see a fine, young, saved man. Well-tempered, clear-minded, clothes on, talking to people in the marketplace, telling them about Jesus and what Jesus had done for him. You see, that's the kind of change that happens when you meet Christ. You are transformed from the inside to the outside. What a marvelous story. He went from being a demon-possessed maniac to a Bible-believing evangelist. <laughs> and all it took was meeting Jesus. So we've seen the day God delivered Gadara's demoniac. We noted the demoniac's confrontation, the duration of his condition, the location of his habitation, the provocation of his transformation, the substantiation of his transformation, and then finally the proclamation of his transformation. In conclusion, God delivered this man from sin, transformed him from a demon-oppressed sinner to a Holy Ghost-possessed saint. And thank God the man told everyone he could of the great things God had done for him. If you've been delivered from sin by the Savior, it's your duty to share the gospel and tell others what Christ has done for you, pointing men and women to the Savior. Transformed people tell other people. What has you bound in sin? Have you ever been set free by Christ? Perhaps you're like this man. You may not be demon-possessed, but you're sin-obsessed. 
and you've never been set free by the Savior, just as Jesus saved this man, he can save you too. Keep studying the book of Luke, and thank you for joining us today.